0: Hello and welcome to the show. This episode contains content that may be triggering to some audience members. This episode contains details of sexual assault, drug use and coarse language. If you are affected by any of the content in today's show, then please don't hesitate to contact any of the following charities for support. SafeLine. NSPCC and Survivors UK and there are plenty more out there on Not Another Education podcast we are advocates for open and honest conversation Rory's story has a powerful message behind it can we do more? well of course we can always do more And now that Boundaries and Consent is fortunately a part of the SRE curriculum in UK schools, our aim today is just simply to empower you, the listener, to have these conversations about boundaries and consent. Because if we don't, we are sending young people into the world, vulnerable and into potentially dangerous situations. And to get you started, we have a lot of resources to support those conversations. Here are just some of my top picks. We have PSHE and Citizenship for Upper Key Stage 2, Body Awareness and Consent, My Body Is Mine lesson pack. And in this, you'll find PowerPoints, activities and follow-up worksheets. How do you say no worksheet? is a really great one for challenging preconceptions. And finally, is it okay for someone to do this to you? Scenario cards. This one is perfect to open up that dialogue. These are just a few to help you get started. There are many more on the Twinkle site. huge huge one welcome Rory um I kind of said I think I must have cut out them but I said sort of that you know it's just it's awesome to kind of see somebody who is so willing to share their story for so many people who struggle to kind of come forward and talk about something and you know also have like a lot of self-doubt you know questioning whether their boundaries are in check and you know did, did is, is that really happen to me a lot of denial I feel around this and the more people who kind of talk about it the more it becomes part of our you know everyday conversation which I feel like it, it needs to be really so uh hey it's it's really great to have you Rory and hi <laughs> so essentially you're with us today to share your your awesome story and I think that yeah. Um, when I told the team that, you know, I kind of shared what essentially has already been out there around your story, a couple of the team about sort of saying said that it would really resonate with them and they feel like it would really help more people to, to come forward, which is, yeah, I guess the whole why. You know, we think about why are we doing this. So, yeah, I'll uh, I'll, I'll leave it to you, Rory. I mean... tell us in your own words essentially.
1: So thank you for that lovely introduction. Um, It's great to be here. Very happy to, to share my story. So I mean if I'm to take it right back to the beginning I suppose one part that I think is very relevant is that I grew up in Ireland and I grew up at a time where I didn't really have any real sex education whatsoever and by real sex education i mean you know we didn't learn very much beyond anatomy i remember one specific class where we were shown really shocking images of what it looks like when you have an std that goes untreated which was very graphic to say the least yeah just a bit (laughs) yeah not for the faint of heart But, you know, in terms of learning about consent, learning about LGBTQ inclusive sex ed, that never happened. And a lot of what we did learn, it was presumed that you'd be straight. It was presumed that in many ways you'd be having sex in order to get pregnant and that that was kind of the only reason you might go there. So, of course, that creates some issues in itself because in life, whether you... uh, have sex so you're blue in the face or whether you're asexual, you still need to learn about all the other emotional aspects that might go along with having sex and what might happen in adult interactions that you likely will be having in later life. So I wasn't really prepared for any of that. On top of that, you know, around that time in my life, I was coming to terms with who I was, sexuality, and, you know, figuring out my place in the world. And I think I had inherited a lot of gay shame from society. And of course, that leads to many other issues of loneliness, of feeling isolated, and feeling bullied and feeling left out. And so I think all of those things were happening. And when you're a teenager, it's really difficult to identify them. And for many people, it's also really difficult to articulate them. So I then decided to move to London for university as I was ending my teens and entering my early 20s and I suppose in many ways that was a really exciting period in my life you know it was great to move to such a big city from a small country and there were lots of great things happening but equally all of those issues that I just spoke about they still existed and they were being left untreated and so that kind of created a perfect storm uh, for a predator to come into my life.
0: I mean, g- g- going back to like what you are sort of saying in terms of the the education you had around that. I mean, we did an episode a little while ago about the reforms in the education, cur- the, well, the national curriculum essentially of around sex and relationship education. And I feel like when I was a teacher, I used to be a teacher, I feel I feel like it was a previous life. But when I was a teacher you just think of it as like sex ed and really it's sex and relationships and we miss that part out. We don't think about how people's families look different and we don't think about the the children who might be um, potentially battling with gender identity or uh, sexual preferences and you know even when we think about five-year-olds you know they they say in terms of relationships if someone doesn't want a hug like like no means no like don't give them a hug like don't push that on them it's so wrong and I think having spoke to like a lot of parents parents who tend to go against the grain with this sort of including that that element into into the education system is it almost feels to them like you're teaching their kids how to have sex does that make sense like it you know it's like you're saying that this exists so you know now you're going to go and do that but it's just so it's so kind of inward inward thinking and it does really bug me because essentially like it just breeds ignorance which is a really unsafe place to be in isn't it really
1: yeah it's really unsafe i mean that erasure is really dangerous and that point that you made about gender is also really important because now that i think about it you know there were never any conversations about gender identity whatsoever at my school and I think as well-intentioned as some teachers were, there was definitely a certain level of awkwardness around subjects that they maybe hadn't thought about broaching before. Um, I'm not trying to point fingers at anybody, but I do feel like my schooling did fail me in that part of my life. And then, you know, it left me very unprepared. I mean it would almost be funny if it weren't so dangerous. But I remember one video we got shown once was a guy and a girl at a party and they were about to have sex. And as they went upstairs to a bedroom, they turned to the camera and said, what happens next? You decide. And that was our whole education on consent was that basically your sexual future is in your hands, but we're not actually going to give you the tools to deal with what may or may not happen. So... You know, it's kind of an amalgamation of all of these different kinds of problems. As you touched on, obviously, the curriculum has changed and it's changed for the better. And I do believe that sex ed is a lot more comprehensive and inclusive nowadays. There are some fantastic charities out there like Brooke who are working specifically with young people in sexual education and relationships, crucially, as you've also mentioned. But back in the day for me, it just wasn't there.
0: Yeah, sure, like, like like me too, I think, well, I'll give you an example of how how dangerous as well that can be, so I, I taught year six, I was a primary teacher, and I remember, this is like, this is like different to the sex and relationship um, education that we delivered, which was always at the back end of year six, and we always used to like joke, we'd say no sex before sats, because it, it's always like a little bit of a giggly lesson, and really, it 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 shouldn't be like that stigma. Unfortunately, has been created because you cover it so little, which again is a problem in itself, isn't it? Really, but I think we did. We had Childline in, and Childline were talking to the young people about boundaries and what do they think is actually acceptable. And from this, obviously, I can't go into real details because it, it's a, it was a safeguarding issue but from this came a number of children who were like actually what's happening in my own home is not okay and last thing on a Friday these kids were then going home to really dangerous situations that you know you can you're on like a bit of a ticking clock then aren't you but if they would have just known that you know, this is okay, or this is not okay so much earlier on like i that really resonates with me when you say like this is like a, this is, the education almost like fails people in a way, and it's not the teacher's fault, and it's certainly not the school's fault. It's just I think as a as a nation really we we, we can do more, I think, and um I think teachers to be given the skills to to have those somewhat difficult and sensitive discussions. Well, what feels like that to them is, you know, could be the difference between somebody putting themselves in a really, really dangerous situation?
1: Definitely. And I think that's one of the reasons that I've chosen to speak out and why I really admire anyone else who speaks out on any sort of issue similar to mine, because I think that, you know, while... I don't see my story solely changing the education system. I do hope that perhaps somebody that hears it might think, oh, that could be a good lesson in school or that's something we should be discussing in a classroom or in some sort of educational space because you know, it's just a human story at the end of the day. And as you were talking about earlier with the teen pregnancy issue, okay, obviously we do not want to promote people who are underage to be having sex and getting pregnant. That's not something I think we want for anybody. But having said that, we have to acknowledge that young people are going to be having sex and we need to equip them for the reality that they're going to face.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it is. It is kind of that. You know, ignorance almost breeds danger. I don't know if that's a saying, but I feel like it. It should be in this case, right? It, <laughs> it you know, is. like <laughs> it, It's just let's deny all of this ever exists, and like you know, by the time they find out what it is, it's just it, it's not in the best way. If that if that kind of makes sense. But you know, let's let's talk about your story. So, if I remember rightly if I set the scene you were living in London is that correct
1: yeah so I'd moved to London for uni and you know like I said in some ways it was a very exciting time but equally you know I was probably still struggling with all of the issues that I had in Ireland and then On top of that, I would say in my early days in London, the friends that I was hanging around with probably didn't have my best interests at heart. You know, some people talk about when they go to university, they have their fresher's friends, and then after that, they kind (laughs) of, you know, they make their real friends. Oh yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, we all remember that. And I think in my case, there was probably a bit of that there. And, you know, as well, with the lack of relationships education, I think I just wasn't good at articulating my feelings and articulating what I wanted. But I do remember one specific night saying to one of my friends at the time, you know, I really wanted to meet somebody and that I was feeling lonely. And he literally told me to download the dating app Grinder. So I did that and, you know, I'm not here to demonize anybody that uses these apps. There's some amazing connections you can make online. But unfortunately for me, that particular moment, I wasn't in a good place. And within minutes, one night of being on the app, I was speaking to an older guy who was articulate, he was attractive, he was clearly quite wealthy and the conversation became very intrusive very quickly you know he was really trying to get me over to his place and the idea of that freaked me out you know going to meet somebody who you'd not met in real life before but I think it was that classic situation where he was very persuasive and persistent and I was vulnerable and so that persuasion and persistence led me to say yes and even at the time like even in that moment as I was getting ready to go there and you know going to make the journey from one side of London to the other I was thinking in my head like do you really want to do this but it's very strange you do feel pressure in a scenario like that once you've said yes to follow through and it's kind of like that angel and devil on your shoulder. You know, I knew what all the bad things that could happen were, but at the same time, the angel was kind of telling me, well, you know, this experience will give you validation. It will take away loneliness momentarily. And also there's part of your brain that's thinking, well, okay, X, Y, and Z could go wrong, but you could also go there and end up having a really good time. So unfortunately... I ended up making that journey and as soon as I got there things were weird from the beginning like I remember he was just very forceful and everything was very hypersexualized I was then offered a drink and I did accept that like I I 100% gave my consent to have a drink when I was there but very quickly then the conversation moved to drugs now
0: If you are affected by any of the content in today's show, then please don't hesitate to contact any of the following charities for support. Safeline, NSPCC and Survivors UK.
1: Now, I really was not a big drug taker at that point. I know, obviously, a lot of students, especially when you're uni, that can become very normalized. But I wasn't really partaking in that. No judgment on anyone who was. But that just wasn't really my thing. And I was presented with a white powder, which still to this day, I'll never really know exactly what that was, which is quite scary. But I yeah, believe yeah, it was yeah. Mephadrone. Uh, and then I was also, um, presented with the drug G, G is uh GHB, which is uh, a date rape drug, which has been used in, you know, many different high profile cases where someone has been raped, including the Stephen Port case. And so when I was presented with those substances without going into extreme detail, it was made quite clear to me that turning them down wasn't really an option. And so when something like that happens to you, you're kind of in that fight or flight situation. And in my mind, it was easier to kind of go into survival mode, take those substances and quote unquote, get on with it than Trying to flee the property because I felt if I did that something much worse could have happened
0: yeah so i I kind of did a little bit of reading around this because I mean I definitely agree that there is this culture when you are in university of you know experimental drugs, and i, I i'm kind of the, I'm kind of on the same page as you that i i didn't really i think it was you know that the you always have like somebody I ca- kind of guess in your in your head saying no, don't do not do drugs you don't know what's going to happen and it's so it, to me it was like I just couldn't like risk it no matter and I've had many like experiences like in my 20s and 30s where you know I have been offered like more high profile drugs than weed and I just I'm just like frightened to do it and I'm not like ashamed of saying that like I just I just don't feel like I'm too worried about what would happen in my body but I I know that essentially people do practice in in a safe way if possible like chem sex essentially and you know so people it it does kind of have a have a link in that way so with with you kind of taking these drugs is it is it like had had you ever had experience with with a drug like, like, like did you recognize kind of the feelings you were feeling when you t- took those drugs if that makes sense
1: I mean, looking back, like from the second I was made to swallow the white powder, I was high within minutes. And like, you know, I had definitely, my demeanor had completely changed. I'd gone from being very nervous to feeling a lot more relaxed. Now that's not to say that I wanted to be there, but it definitely softened the blow to a certain degree. And then, you know, after that, Maybe that wasn't the right way of putting that. Let me, I don't know. I'm trying to think, I'm I'm trying to think of how to, as soon as I was given the white powder and forced to take it, my demeanor definitely changed. And I definitely, uh, my inhibitions were definitely lessened. And then that's when I was also forced to take GHB. And I think for me, you know, whether it comes to any substance, whether it's alcohol, any sort of drug, I associate those things with being with your friends and having a good time. Like I'm a social drinker, you know, I'm not somebody who necessarily has a glass alone with dinner, not there's anything wrong in that. It's just not who I am. And so I think Uh, To me, doing drugs with somebody when you're basically sober in a private home where you don't know the person, that just feels intimidating and scary, especially when, you know, you're in someone's flat, you don't know, there's an age gap, there's definitely a, a difference in power there, you know, that man held all the power in that situation, nobody knew where I was, I didn't really know what I was taking, and so all of that was very scary Obviously, then I was high, and I did not know that when you were drunk and high, you cannot consent, which I think is something a lot of people really don't know. And then, of course...
0: So, 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 so Rory, sorry, what, is that? what does that mean? So you cannot consent so legally? Are you kind of seeing that you're not, like, copus mentis to consent is that what that means or
1: yeah because you know when you're drunk or high you're not in a state of mind where you can give consent for any sort of sexual interaction and i will say you know uh, that is very murky you know there's a lot of people who obviously go out on a friday night and will go to a club or a bar and pick somebody up and uh, you know then we're in a dangerous territory there of All of these issues around consent and rape, and I'm not an expert in any of those. I think there's probably a much greater debate to be had around education with substances and sex. But I'm just saying that, you know, in the position I was in, looking back on it now, it's like painfully obvious to me that what was happening to me there was assault because... I was forced to take substances I didn't want, and I was also then engaging in non-consensual sex acts that I could not consent to because of the state I was in, and definitely wouldn't have wanted sober. So it's a very complex issue, and there's a lot to unpack within it.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I, I kind of... So... so- when When, my my understanding is is when when you are kind of taking the the drugs is that not only is it kind of like lowering your inhibitions and putting you in a state that isn't essentially where you would be normally it's also it removes your ability to fight you know in and kind of say even even like a reflex thing like you know if somebody pushes you in the street by accident, like oh sorry but it's so it, it it's it's like to the point where like you have almost like no war because the drug has impacted it like that much which then this other person you have to like question so they know that effect that that's having on you right like it it's just like you say it's so murky like for anybody who's kind of picking someone up like in a bar right and they just think well they say yes so that must be okay but would they say yes if they weren't completely under the influence. It's tough.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, in this particular scenario, uh, one thing that I thought at the time was whether this guy... Actually knew the effects this was going to have on me, but one thing that became very clear throughout the night was the fact that he was pulling out his phone and showing me pictures and going on different apps of other guys that he'd hooked up with, and it was obvious the same sort of thing was happening every time. So this was not a one-off incident. This was something he did regularly. He obviously invited other men over to his flat drugged them, and then I guess forced them into doing things that they didn't want to. Now, I don't know if all of those men were young, I don't know if every single interaction was non-consensual, but I know that this sort of evening was happening frequently, and then after a few hours of drug taking and and non-consensual sex, I passed out, I think largely due to the effects of GHB, and When I sort of came to again, there was a third man in the flat now, and he uh, was trying to perform a sex act on me, had obviously been invited over by the flat owner. So uh, the point I'm making in telling you all that is, you know, this is something that is happening all the time. This is a regular occurrence. There are a lot of predators on these apps, and it's A very slick operation. They know how to go about finding somebody vulnerable or somebody who's in a bad place. And they have all these different tools that, you know, they have drugs to give them it's very glamorized online you know they can present themselves in a certain way and when I look at the Stephen Port victims you know Stephen Port was essentially catfishing a lot of the guys that he met up with he wore wigs he lied about his occupation and his past and there were definite alterations to his appearance digitally on some of the apps, you know, with filters, etc. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of people doing what was done to me. I think I'm just one of the lucky ones who actually got out relatively undamaged by comparison to some other people.
0: I mean, Rory, I, I, I have, I have to ask, like, the, 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 that night, or was it the same night, or the next morning? You, you managed to leave, but it was. Uh, how, how soon did, did it kind of hit you that? this is what's happened and this wasn't okay.
1: Well, I managed to leave that night and I got, I think, the first tube home that let's say was at like 5am. So it was the early hours of the morning when I actually left the property. And to be really honest with you, I didn't really think about it much after that. I kind of blocked out the experience and I did think that in some ways it was my fault because I had agreed to go there and meet that individual and knew that there were risks involved. Now, obviously, I don't think that at all now. I know that it yeah, wasn't sure. my fault. And, you know, I've I've moved on a lot from those emotions. But it takes a long time to come to terms with something like that, because it is so stigmatized. And then I remember, around the time the Me Too movement happened, I started really thinking in depth about what had happened to me, because of course that raised so many conversations on abuse and consent and lots of other heavy topics and I remember kind of quietly tiptoeing around the subject with a few friends not really going into full detail on what had happened to me but just asking them questions about you know has something similar ever happened to you that uh, a victim has spoken about let's say in regard to the me too movement and Then I started to conclude that everything that happened to me was wrong, and I actually watched a documentary called Chemsex, which obviously focused on um, the Chemsex epidemic that is kind of sweeping the gay community still to this day, and while obviously I'm not somebody who was engaging in Chemsex on a weekly basis, I still was affected by Chemsex crime, so all of those examples in the media definitely led me to think about my experience in a greater context. And that eventually led me to speak up as well. So I've got a lot of admiration for anybody who says anything on the above.
0: That's That's really interesting, you know, because I, I feel like, well, a lot of personal things that have happened to me in the past, you kind of justify and say to yourself, well, you know, I don't really want to talk about it but maybe like other people have had similar things and then it's almost like it takes you to talk about it to somebody and almost like compare like situations for someone to go oh that's not okay like that that's not an experience that you know you should be having like at all like that's not my experience or I'm not saying that you know there's one right experience but you know it it almost like raises red flags in your head, then you go, "Oh gosh, right, well, that wasn't normal, and it it kind of builds from there, doesn't it? And you know that that's why it's so good like you say to have people talking about it and I mean, something that got me thinking this week, and i didn't I didn't kind of put it in our show notes just because it, it's it's like a a new thing. I've just been thinking about you know this episode quite a lot this week, and I've been watching Cheer on Netflix. Um, I don't know if you've seen that, but um essentially, what one of the um, the Navarro cheerleaders essential, he was he was convicted. I think he was convicted. I'm not really up to that part yet, but he he was basically using his power and influence to to, you know send illicit pictures, wasn't he, to like young young guys who were also wanting to like make it in that industry. And people he looked up to and I mean it becomes like such a classic story now which just it saddens me every time I hear about it that somebody who is essentially a role model and such a prominent figure like uses and abuses their kind of following in in that sense and you know what's interesting I don't know if you've stopped me if like this is complete new information you've not seen the program but No, I see it. Was it
1: Jerry that was convicted? It
0: was Jerry, yeah. Yeah,
1: I haven't watched the new season, but I watched all season one.
0: Oh, okay, so, um, and then the the two boys, uh, the twin boys, I think his name was Charlie who came forward saying that essentially, like, I said no. Like, so many times I said no, and he just was so persistent. And it's just, it makes me so, so angry in the sense that, how many times do you actually have to say no before people are just like, literally like, sod off? <laughs> do
1: you know what's really interesting though? Looking back on the night where I was assaulted, I actually don't think I said no once. I think I probably just didn't say yes, if that makes any sense. And maybe the key point yeah. to take away from my interaction was... I was never asked. I was never asked if I felt comfortable. I was never asked if I was okay with what was happening. I was never asked if I was enjoying anything. Everything that was going to happen was kind of just laid down. And I think that where education needs to grow is on emotional intelligence and being able to read body language and signals. And, you know, part of me being drugged was clearly so that I wouldn't say no, you know, that that was definitely the motive behind that. But uh, while it's very depressing to think that in that specific example, somebody was saying no, 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 time and time again, and they were still done wrong. I think there's something to be said for you know we shouldn't always even have to say no we we should be asked and people should be able to pick up on a vibe or a feeling in a room um, but yeah the the Jerry stuff in cheer that's awful I mean I I really warmed to Jerry as a character as well in the first season everyone I, I did yeah
0: yeah you
1: no know? so it's very depressing when a figure like that you know falls that you were really rooting for but i suppose in a way it might be a good thing that it's shown that even if you really care about somebody or really like somebody it doesn't mean that they are incapable of harming you and you do need yeah. to protect yourself and you need to have the tools to be able to say no to somebody even if it is somebody that you trust
0: yeah because i think I, when i was kind of looking at I, I went down a bit of a wormhole to be honest of looking about you know, statistics and how often this happens, and what type of relationships, and all, all this sort of sort of stuff, and so many, you know, reports of sexual assault and rape, is in with what Paul we started out as a really committed, loving relationship. You know, in marriages, and you know, sort of just relationships where people are, are together for so long, and then it just sort of happens and people are like oh well you know I'm married to them so it it's not rape or it's not sexual assault and that that's not true that's not the case so I started also looking like what do you do if you then realize that you have been sexually assaulted raped sexually abused so so what so once if we pick up the story from where you know you'd spoke to other people. And then they'd said like, that's not really okay. Or, you know, that's not necessarily like the experience that I've had. What, what, what do you do then? Do you go straight to the police? Do you like start Googling like mad? What What, what was your next sort of step?
1: Well, I suppose it's worth saying that between the experience i had and me realizing how wrong it was and wanting to actually take action over it a lot of time had passed like it really took me a full 5 years to really speak up about everything that had happened and at that point you know i could not identify exactly where this guy had lived because it had been so long since i'd been to his flat in the dead of the night and i think it would have been very very difficult to prove exactly what would have happened which is you know i guess another flaw in the system which is a bigger conversation for another time because we don't have time to go and do all that but i think what i was more concerned with was actually getting my story out there because i knew it would be therapeutic for me and i knew it would help other people once i started going public with my story i made a podcast about it which Spoke of my story in full. I wrote an article for the Metro. I spoke on BBC Radio London, and then through doing all of that press, I got invited to speak at the first National Chemsex Crime Prevention Conference in early 2020.
0: Having like you know a safe space to share that and a platform to share your story, like in many ways, I I definitely like agree that that is the best thing you can do. I mean, I wonder whether that that guy who you know who who you were essentially like a survivor by him if he's heard it and then thought oh my god that was me
1: i died it because i think he was doing that to so many people i'm just another fish in the sea i think that he is 100% an addict it was definitely an act of addiction whenever he abused me and I don't even think I'm on his radar. I mean, I do know exactly who he is and actually Googled him uh, a little while ago just to kind of see what he's up to these days. I know he doesn't live in London anymore, and I think he's probably living a very different life to the one that he was living when we met. But I think that when somebody's like amoral enough to meet a young queer person on an app who's clearly struggling and clearly does not want to be in the situation that they're in and then proceed to drug them and also invite the second individual over to assault them as well like to me i don't really have much interest in you know if he has a family or if it might destroy him i think i used to think a lot more that way and now i'm just like my hands are in the air, and I I would love to see justice, but that won't happen. And I think as well, there's not too much point in me reflecting on the shoulda, woulda, coulda of the situation. Yeah, because of in theory, like it would be great if this guy did, you know, pay pay his dues and and was put behind bars, but that's not going to happen. And I kind of can't live in hypotheticals forever. So I think what I'm trying to do is turn a positive or turn the negative into a positive and just kind of uh, educate people on what has happened to me and how hopefully that could prevent it from happening to somebody else.
0: I, I, I kind of wonder as well, like I know this is kind of, we said this right at the beginning, but you know how you saw that video, like what happens next, your choice sort of thing. I just wonder how like such a powerful message that you give Rory, how that can translate into into the classroom, because I think essentially the challenge that teachers face are not only like potential backlash from parents. I mean, coming from like, I'm I'm a parent, right? Like I have, I have a little boy, but I I kind of think that like, I would much rather somebody said this thing exists or this can happen or, you know, that this is how we can be safe about it or just have these like conversations. And I mean, I'd like to think how I, I was like that cool mom who'd be like, as long as you're doing it safely whether it's drug use or you know um whether you're having sex whatever it's really weird to say that because he's only three years old by the way so that's why I'm kind of like oh he's like it's weird to think him growing up and like yeah but it's um I'd I'd like to think that he would be you know in, in that that safe space where you know myself as well as the education system we're having those open conversations and I really hope by the time he reaches that age that you know they they, the curriculum has evolved to the point because even with the reforms I still think we can do more like you know I I don't know how parents manage teenagers now with so much like social media and so many apps and so many dating apps and I and I, I do kind of wonder like how how exactly they they are meant to teach like the whole internet safety thing but also not terrify them if that makes sense because it's like a 14 year old can only like process so much about having that lived experience and yeah i just wonder how how we can do it in the classrooms and share share kind of stories that are meaningful that people can take home and actually resonate with and understand I'm, oh, I'm sorry, Rory.
1: I was just going to say, I think that by the time that your son has reached, let's say, the teenage years, I do see things progressing even more. I mean, I will say on a really positive note, I think that we are making great waves in terms of a lot of these issues. And I think that education for me goes way beyond parents or the classroom I think that you know we get it from so many different aspects of life whether that's the workplace or whether it's the media or whether it's socially you know different people we engage with I think we can all educate each other and You know, the BBC series Four Lives, which follows the Stephen Port case and really humanized his victims. I think that did a really good job at showing how sexual assault can affect men. I think I May Destroy You also had some really great scenes in it that normalized that as well and showed that, yes, men can be sexually assaulted. And it's not normal to be assaulted, but to experience it is something that has happened to many people. And so I think that... We are definitely getting there. Uh, but I mean, I hope for you too, that, you know, your son grows up in a world where we are much more open about these things. And I think it seems like he's got a great parent. It seems like, you know, he's going to well, be- Well, what
0: can you say? <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: <laughs> but you know, I think, I think all that's really positive. So we just need to continue having these conversations and hopefully more and more young people who've been affected in any way, shape or form by these issues will then feel more empowered to actually speak about them. And going back to what I was saying about like the teachers, Earlier, hopefully, you know, teachers will feel less awkward around these things, and hopefully, will feel less under pressure from parents not to talk about them because maybe parents will realise they are a reality.
0: Yeah, and I mean, it, when I saw your BBC segment as well about you know, Safeline had like a huge, massive rise in men reporting sexual assault, um, you know, d- during the pandemic. I mean. It, I'd like your take on this but what, why don't you think men ask for help like what like I, 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 as as a thing well in general I guess like women too but I definitely think it's this whole thing of awareness around not only men's mental health but men's like sexual well-being as well like why do you think that this is only just there's just a rise now it's quite interesting right
1: I think some of it is to do with toxic masculinity. I think that there's a lot of men out there who don't want to admit that they've been raped. And obviously being raped is really horrific and it's really embarrassing and it is really scary. And so I understand why anybody wouldn't want to speak up on that because it's maybe not a box you want to open. But I do think for men, there are some men who get raped by other men and they might not identify as gay. And therefore for them, that is a really scary thing to speak about so that's maybe one aspect of it secondly i think really only now are we starting to see examples in the media of men who are speaking about experiencing things like this i know terry cruz was very vocal on an experience he had many years ago so that's an example of somebody who's really spoken up and can hopefully provide some example for people who are struggling. But, you know, when you look at uh, a rapist like Raynard Sinaga, so he was convicted of over 159 offences in the UK relatively recently. He's one of the UK's most prolific rapists and all of his victims were male and the vast majority of them have chosen to remain silent. Whereas, you know, there are obviously women who get raped by serial rapists all the time, unfortunately. But it does seem like women tend to be a lot more vocal. I mean, you only have to look at something like the Jeffrey Epstein case where there are so many public survivors. And they're all fantastic. They're really inspiring. But I think if Jeffrey Epstein were raping young men or sexually assaulting young men or abusing young men, it would probably be a different story.
0: Rory, I honestly, like, I think, I think it's amazing to kind of hear your story and have it shared. And I, and I know you've, you've probably told it a, a few times across a, a few different platforms. But I really do feel honoured that you're willing to share it with with our audience because we see so many children not only kind of struggling with their I guess sexual identity but also the the boundaries that come with that and you know being able to have those conversations before anything becomes that way or even if somebody has experienced something similar to to yourself you know it's it's finding the courage to speak up and know that they're not alone which is is you know how, how can you honestly say what's more valuable than that it's uh it's awesome Thank you.
1: Oh, thank you so much. No, thank you for inviting me on. I think, you know, I'm so happy to do an education podcast and I do get asked to tell this story a lot. And so obviously like I can be a bit choosy about where I choose to share it, but I think what you guys are doing is great and hopefully it will help your audience as well. So thank you for having me.
0: No, thank thank you, Rory. As I said before, if you are affected by any of the content in today's show, then please do contact any of the following charities for further support or even if you have questions. Safeline, NSPCC or Survivors UK. And remember we have tons of resources to help support those difficult conversations. As I said earlier, PSHE and Citizenship for Upper Key Stage 2, Body Awareness and Consent, My Body Is Mine lesson pack how do you say no worksheet and is it okay for someone to do this to you scenario cards these are just a sample of the wide selection we have at twinkle be sure to check them out and you know get in touch let us know how it's going i hope you enjoyed today's show this is a new a new type of show for us but we hope you found it useful and empowering take care And we'll see you soon. Bye.